Well, good morning, church, and happy Thanksgiving, and may I be the first to be privileged to wish you a very Merry Christmas, because this is the first Sunday of Advent, and so we are, as we mentioned last week, we will be taking a break from our study through the book of Revelation, which we've been in for a few months, and we will be taking these next four weeks today including included leading up to Christmas to celebrate God's gift of a Savior to the world. And then in January, we'll return to our study of the book of Revelation and look again as we begin to make our way down the final stretch of that study to the second advent of Christ. But we pause during these four weeks to consider again the glory and the joy of his first advent, his first arrival. Advent is also a time of year where we collect a special offering for international missions called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. Now, you might be wondering, some of you might be wondering, what in the world is a Lottie Moon and why do we take a collection for it? Well, Lottie Moon is not a phase of the moon, it's a person. Uh, She was a woman, a single woman, who was uh, born in the 1800s to a wealthy family in Virginia. She went off to college as an unbeliever, and God soon uh, saved her, brought her to faith in Christ, and radically changed the direction of her life. So she left her comfortable home there in Virginia, and she followed the Lord's leading to serve the Lord in international missions as a missionary to China. And she served there for over 40 years as a missionary in China. And the stories of uh, what she encountered and what God did through her and what God did uh, on the mission field in China are collected in letters that she wrote back to her home church and back to to the mission society that had sent her to China. And ever since then, those letters that she wrote have inspired generations of believers to be uh, involved in international missions, both inspiring uh, those that will actually go and serve in those capacities, but also inspiring the church back here in the States to give generously to the work of missions around the world. She passed away on Christmas Eve in 1912. She was 72 years old, having given the majority of her adult life to work to the work of missions. And so um, as a result of that, uh, in honor of her sacrifice every December, Southern Baptist churches all throughout North America collect what's known as the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, specifically for missionaries. And so this is where Southern Baptist churches all over the states uh, collect this special offering during the month of December. Um, And 100% of it, all of the proceeds of this offering, go directly to support missionaries who serve all around the globe. And so just imagine some 47,000 churches across America um, gathering together, pooling their resources, cooperating in such a way as to be able to support and send over 3,600 missionaries to the darkest places of the world uh, where they need the gospel. It's an incredible display of 
gospel unity and gospel cooperation between churches that I think honors Christ. And so we celebrate this. Um, we participate in this every year during December. And so during this month and the, the Sundays, including today, leading up to Christmas, we're going to be collecting this offering and all the proceeds of it will go towards international missions. And so I just want to encourage you and your family uh, to be praying about this. Uh, we do this every year and it's just uh, it's amazing to see how God moves among the generosity of his people uh, to, uh, to give towards this. And so just want to encourage you to pray about this. If God would have you participate in this, we'll be collecting this along with our regular offering all during this month um, leading up to Christmas. You can just, uh, if you're giving by check, just make it out as you normally would um, and just designate it as Lottie Moon and we'll make sure that it gets set aside for that particular fund. So like we said, today um, we are, we're in the first Sunday of Advent. So if you've got your Bibles, and I do hope that you do, open to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be in the ninth chapter of the book of Isaiah this morning as we begin a, a four-Sunday series looking at Advent. The word Advent is not actually in the Bible, um, but it's a season that the church has celebrated for hundreds of years celebrating God's gift of a Savior to the world. And so each week and during this series, we're going to be focusing on a different aspect of the Advent season. Today, as we've already heard, we're, we're looking at the topic of hope, and that's what we're going to find in Isaiah 9. Next week, we'll look at, the, at peace, and then love, and then joy. And then on Christmas Eve, we will celebrate His arrival. We will celebrate the arrival of the king because that's, that's actually what the word advent means. It's from the Latin adventus and that means the arrival or the, the coming of a king. And so these four weeks are a time of us remembering that the king came in his first advent and it's also a time of expectation and anticipation as we await his second arrival at his second advent. And so it's about looking back and remembering all that Christ accomplished in his first, first advent, and it's about looking forward, as we said, and anticipating and expecting all that he will complete in his second advent. So let's look at Isaiah 9. We're going to read the first seven verses, and the word hope is not found in this passage but the theme of hope is all throughout it. And so I want you to listen for that theme of hope as we read the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 9. This is God's word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought, the land of, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden 
and the staff for his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that there is such a season called Advent where we celebrate and remember the arrival of your Son and where we recall with great anticipation and expectation that he will return and make all things new. And so, Father, today and in the next three weeks, as we consider what your word has to say about not just the season, but what occurred at his first advent, I pray, Father, that our celebration of the Christmas season would be influenced and impacted God, by what you say in your word, I pray, Father, that our celebration would reflect the accomplishment of Christ at his first advent and would also reflect the tension and the suspense of waiting for his return. Father, be with us this morning as we look at this particular passage. Help us, Father, to come away from this being transformed just a little bit more into the likeness of Christ for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this is the prophet Isaiah, and he prophesied for the southern kingdom of Judah. And he prophesied during the time in which the northern kingdom of Israel was under Assyrian captivity. Isaiah is known as the messianic prophet because so much of his writings deal with the promise of a coming Messiah. He writes there in verse 1, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. For in the former time he brought into contempt, that word contempt there, most often that Hebrew word is translated as cursed. So he, being the Lord, brought into contempt or brought into a state of being cursed, what? The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he says, God has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nation. So the land that Isaiah is speaking about here, the land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali, is the land that is west of the Sea of Galilee, north of Jerusalem. It was at that time essentially a thoroughfare 
for the invading armies from the north. It's how they got down into Palestine. They came through this area. It's how the, the empires of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and even the Romans, it's, it's how they got down into that area by coming through this land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali, otherwise known as Galilee, the way of the sea. For centuries, as a result of that, it had been a, grand, a land of a great anguish. It had been a land of, as he says here, contempt, a cursed land because of all the conflict and devastation that had occurred because of these invading armies that would come in from the north. They would go straight through that strip of land. And so it had been a place of gloom. But Isaiah says here in verse 1, there will be no, no more gloom for you. Why? For in the latter time, God has made glorious. That word glorious carries the connotation of honorable. It, it, it literally means heavy, significant, honorable, important. God has made glorious or honorable the way of the sea. So Isaiah is saying to the land, something's going to happen to you. Something's going to happen to you. In this, in this land of desolation, this land of destruction, this land of gloom and contempt, something's going to happen to you that will cause there to be no more gloom for you. Well, what is that? Well, Matthew says in his gospel, Matthew chapter 4, he also speaks of this very same parcel of land. Listen to what he says in Matthew 4, beginning in verse 12. Now when he, speaking of Jesus, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea <clears throat> in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali. So that, why did, why did Jesus go there? Why, why, did, why did he go to that place? Remember, this is the very outset of his earthly ministry. Verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he, then he quotes from Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2 that we just read. The land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So what's happening there in Isaiah 9 is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. That there's a Messiah that would come. And, and where would he come? Where would he begin his earthly ministry? Where would be the, the nexus of his ministry which, where, uh, from which he would eventually crush the head of Satan and redeem his people? The land of Zebulon, the land of Naphtali. The land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. So in the ninth chapter, these seven verses of Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to see three pictures of hope. And the first we find there in verse 1. And that is a picture of the hope of glory in the midst of misery and anguish and desolation. The hope of glory in the midst of that. This is the hope of honor from that which is dishonorable. 
It's the hope of beauty that comes from the ashes. It is hope when hope seems unlikely and perhaps even impossible. This desolate land of misery and and anguish and contempt, this cursed land was a hopeless land. This would be where the Redeemer would begin his work. So how do we celebrate this aspect of hope during the Advent season, during our celebration of Christmas? Well, by remembering, looking back and remembering, and by looking forward with anticipation. First, we remember that we too were in misery and anguish because of our sin and rebellion against God. We were cursed, contemptible to a holy God. And we were hopeless in that state. Jesus, to live among us as one of us and to die in our place, to credit us with his righteousness, a righteousness we could never have through our own living, to credit us with his righteousness by faith, to take from us the punishment and penalty of our sin when he died for us on Calvary. By faith, he gave us a new heart, a clean heart, and he put his spirit in us. As Paul told the church in Colossae in chapter 1, verse 27 of Colossians, it is Christ in you who is the hope of glory. So at Christmas, we celebrate that that God has taken the dry and parched land of our souls, and by faith in Christ, he's made us new. He's made us whole. He's made us honorable. That which was dishonorable, he's made honorable. That which was meant for the ashes, he has caused beauty to come forth. He's brought hope to that which was hopeless. But we're not honorable in and of ourselves. We're not beautiful in and of ourselves. The honor that we have is because of Christ in us. The beauty we have in us is because of Christ in us who is the hope of glory. But we also remember what Paul said in Philippians 1.6, that he who began that good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus So there is also anticipation here that the one who fulfilled his promise to bring one, a a redeemer, who would justify us by faith, the one who fulfilled that promise has also promised to sanctify us. He's also promised to finish that work, to grow us in our faith, to mature us in Christ. He's, He's promised to finish that work. To the point where one day he will present us as a perfect spotless bride for his son. And so we remember, we remember the provision of Christ in us who is the hope of glory which is accomplished by the first advent. And we look forward with anticipation, we look forward with eager expectation to how God will perfect that work when Christ returns at his second coming and his second advent. That's the first picture of hope. The second picture of hope that we get from this passage is found in verse 2. 
So here, Isaiah is still talking about the land of Galilee, the land of Zebulon and Naphtali, this land of anguish and contempt and gloom because of all the war and devastation that resulted. And now here in verse 2, he describes it as being in darkness. He says in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And of course, we know that the light was sh- that was shown was the light of Christ. The lo- light that was shown into that darkness was Jesus. Darkness in Scripture is often a metaphor for man's ignorance of God. And his ignorance of God is, of course, a result, a consequence of man's sin and rebellion against God. Because of our sin and rebellion against God, because we're out of fellowship with God, Man is ignorant of God. He's ignorant of the true God. He's he's ignorant of his gospel. And into this darkness of man's ignorance of God, God caused the light of Jesus Christ to break forth. In John chapter 8, Jesus says that he is the light of the world. And so the light of the world breaks into this darkness and brings to us, brings to man, the knowledge of God, brings the knowledge of God to man in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we have the second picture of hope, and that is the hope of light in the midst of darkness. Because of the Christ of Christmas, we who were in darkness were given the light of Christ to give us the knowledge of God, not just to know about him, not just to know what he's like, Certainly that, but much more than that, to actually know him, to know him as our God, to know him as our Father, our Lord. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Paul says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And friend, that light doesn't shine into our hearts because we are good people. It doesn't shine into our hearts because we are worthy of that light being shown into our darkness. No, this light was shown into the darkness of our hearts simply by the grace of God in spite of how unworthy we are of it because of our sin and our rebellion. It's by grace that this light has shown into our darkness. And so how do we celebrate this aspect of hope, hope of light in the midst of darkness? Again, by remembering and anticipating. We remember that though we were in deep darkness, ignorance of God, and ignorance of the gospel, because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, because of our desire to live life our own way, our God fulfilled his promise to send a light, the light of Jesus Christ, the light of the world, And by his sovereign grace, he shone that light 
into the darkness of our hearts that was in deep darkness. Why? To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate the goodness of God, the grace and mercy of God in sending that light into our lives, not just into the world, but into our lives so that we might have the privilege of knowing Him as our God. We now have the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we also anticipate, we, we eagerly expect that the God who fulfilled His promise to bring that light into our hearts, well, He's also promised to take that light to the darkest places of this world through the proclamation of the gospel. And God intends to use us, the church, to penetrate that darkness as we take the light and hope of the gospel to the nations. As we've been making our way through our study of the book of Revelations, we've seen a number of times, and most predominantly in Revelation chapter 7, we, we have that scene, that vision of the throne of God in heaven, surrounded by people from every language, tribe, nation, and tongue. They're from every people group. And since some of those people groups are not yet represented in God's kingdom, there yet remains work to do with respect to missions and taking the gospel to the nations. Because that promise remains. Every single one of those people groups will be represented in that Revelation 7 scene. Just as Jesus told us, make disciples of all nations, all people groups. And since every single one of those unreached people groups are going to be represented in that, and yet many of them are in darkness today. They're, they're living in a land of deep darkness, darkness to the hope of the gospel, darkness to the hope of, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Then that means that work remains for us to do, church, to take the gospel to them, to hold out the light of Christ and proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. The only question is, will we, will you and I be found faithful in that task? Both in, in, in sending and, and supporting and resourcing those who go, but also in going. And who knows if God may even be raising up some. Oh, I pray this is the case from our own fellowship, who will be the next Lottie Moon, who will be the one to pour out the rest of their days on the altar of sacrifice in service of the King in those dark places. Will we be found faithful in raising them up and by God's grace sending them out to fulfill this mission? A third picture of hope is found in verses 3 through 5 of Isaiah 9. Here in verse 3, Isaiah is no longer addressing the land of Galilee and the people of Galilee. He shifts his focus and he now begins to address God directly on their behalf. He says to God, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest 
as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, that is, the burden of this land of Galilee, and the staff for his shoulder, that is, the shoulder of Galilee, and the rod of his oppressor, that is, the oppressor of Galilee, all these, he says, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So this is the, the, another picture of hope. But this is the picture of the hope of rejoicing in victory over our enemies while we're yet in battle against them. The hope of rejoicing in victory over our enemies while still in the midst of battle against them. When Isaiah says this stuff, this land is still occupied by the Assyrians. The enemy is still winning. The yoke of the Assyrians is still on them. The staff of the, of the enemy is still heavy on the shoulder of the people. The, the, the rod of the oppressor is not yet broken. And in the context of their world there, nor does it seem as if the rod of the oppressor will ever be broken. And yet Isaiah prophesies, yes, it will be. It will be broken. And he uses very colorful, very figurative language to describe it here. He talks about a time when the people of this land will rejoice before the Lord as with joy at the harvest. I've never experienced that. I don't know. I'm, I'm not a farmer. I don't know the joy of the harvest. But, but apparently when the harvest comes, there's great rejoicing because of the bountiful provision that has come as a result of the harvest. He, this, this describes the kind of joy that these people will rejoice in. He further describes it as, the, as rejoicing uh, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. What spoil is this? It's, well, it's the spoil that is theirs because of the defeat of the enemy one day. Isaiah talks about a time to come when the boot of the tramping warrior, this, this warrior, the, this talking about the enemy, the boot of the tramping warrior that had previously wreaked havoc on this people and on this land, his boot, a- along with his garments, that he says are rolled in blood, which gives us the picture of, of such a victory over the enemy that the enemy's very garments are rolled in blood. He says that the enemy's boot and their garments rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. This is not just a defeat of the enemy. This is an utter decimation of the enemy. This is complete defeat to where even his boots and his armor and his clothes of the enemy are burned and vanquished in other words there is no more of the enemy there there is nothing left of the enemy that's a picture of complete and utter defeat now in the setting the invading assyrians were eventually defeated but they weren't defeated by Israel. They weren't defeated by the Jews. The Assyrians were defeated by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were, in time, defeated by the Persians. The Persian Empire gave way to 
the Greek Empire. And then the defeat of Alexander the Great paved the way for the Roman Empire. And so century after century, this land and this people were just transferred from one occupying army to another. But it was during the Roman occupation of this land that God would bring forth his son, born of a virgin. This Christ, this Jesus would live a perfectly righteous life, fulfill the law to the T, and then he would be put to death on a Roman cross, crucified for the sins of man, and through his death, he would utterly decimate sin and death, utterly defeat our enemies. As Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we celebrate this aspect of hope during Advent? The hope of victory over our enemies while we're still in the midst of battle against them. Well, first by looking back and remembering that our enemy, sin and death, was defeated at Calvary. Sin no longer has a grip on us who have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And while physical death remains a reality for all of us, spiritual death is no more for those who have hope in Christ. Those who are alive in Christ will live forevermore. Our enemies have been defeated, and today we live in victory over sin. And we celebrate Jesus' victory over our enemies. But in the same breath, we know that in this life, in this world, during this time, we are still in the midst of battling against those enemies, those defeated enemies. And so we also look forward with great anticipation and eager expectation to the day in which the hope of our enemy's defeat is utterly done. Where we will be saved not just from sin's penalty, not just from sin's power, but from sin's very presence. Where we will be at a place where death will be no more. There will be no more death, no more sickness, no more disease, no more tears, no more suffering. And to top all of that off, in the end, our conquering king will fully and finally defeat our enemy, that dragon that we've been talking about in Revelation, our great enemy, the deceiver and tormentor of our souls, Satan. He will be thrown into the lake of fire and burned forever and destroyed and how will all of this hope happen what's the source of all of this hope well the source of all of this hope is a child who would be king look at verses six and seven you'll recognize these verses as being the lyrics of Handel's famous messiah here we see the source of our hope for which means because so here's, here's the reason for our hope. Here's the source of our hope. For to us a child is born, 
to us a son is given. We know that is Jesus. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And we know that that happens when he comes to reign forever. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It will be an eternal reign. It will be an eternal kingdom of Christ. And then he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The source of all of this hope is a child who would be king. And so during Advent, we remember the provision of this child. The arrival, the advent of this child who was God enfleshed as one of us, made man. And this child, we're told, would be a suffering servant according to Isaiah's prophecy later in Isaiah 53, where it's said of him, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And so we celebrate, and we thank God during this season that he has given us a child, a child who was born in Bethlehem, who was his very own son, who was born to die, who would go to Calvary for sinners like us. So we acknowledge that we ought to see the manger of Bethlehem against the backdrop of the cross of Calvary and thus thank God for his grace and provision of a rescuer, a redeemer. But we also look forward with great anticipation that the king will one day return, not this time as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. And that's what we've been reading about and learning about in our study through the book of Revelation that the king will come back, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. But that's then and this is now, and for now, we wait. We wait and we hope. There are a couple of Hebrew words that are translated into the Hebrew word hope for us in the Old Testament. One of them is the Hebrew word Tikvah. Tikvah describes, it describes a cord that's stretched to its limit. Uh, imagine, a, a rat, imagine a rubber band that's, that's stretched and you keep stretching it and you start to kind of squinch your eyes and there's, there's tension, there's tension in the air because you know something's about to happen, right? That, that, that tension is the word picture for that Hebrew word for hope, that there's tension, that there, there's a suspensefulness because, because something's about to happen. And, and that's what the prophets wrote about, that, that, that before Christ came the first time, there, were, there was a tension. Things weren't as they were supposed to be. And God was going to do something. It was a promise of Messiah, but he wasn't here yet. And so there was this tension 
that, that, that didn't describe what was happening at that time, but it was coming. It was about to happen. And that describes where we are, church. In this day, in this time, things aren't as they're going to be. As we unpack Revelation, we see an eternal kingdom that looks like the garden. And we look around, and, and it does, doesn't look like the garden right now. It doesn't look like a place where there's, where there's no more tears, no more suffering, no more disease. And so we know it's going to change. And so there's a tension. The, the rope is pulled tight, and we know there's something's going to happen. The other Hebrew word is mikveh. Mikveh just carries the connotation of waiting. That's the idea of biblical hope. It's, it's waiting, waiting for that which is going to come. And the, the, the Israelites, as they read the prophecies of the coming Messiah, they were, they were waiting for that. They were longing for that. Church, we wait for his return. We're just, we're just waiting. It's not now. We pray for it to be soon. And so we wait. And we celebrate the, the first arrival, the first advent, and all that it accomplished for us as we wait for his return with great and eager anticipation. Biblical hope also, as we look at the landscape of the word hope throughout the scriptures, including that of the New Testament, it's not the idea of wishful thinking. That's kind of how we use the word hope in our connotation today. We hope that this will happen. We hope that it won't rain this week. We hope that we won't get sick. We hope that our children will be well. We hope that our team will make it to the playoffs. It's wishful thinking, right? Hope. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a confident assurance of an already determined future. Confident assurance. It's going to happen. And if you are a believer in Christ, if you know Jesus as your Lord, if you've placed your faith in Christ alone, as your only hope for rescue from the judgment that we all deserve because of our sin, then your future is already determined. It's just not yet. And so we wait. And we wait in hope. And we think on that and celebrate that during Advent. But if you've not trusted in, in Jesus' finished work on the cross as your only hope for rescue, from the judgment that we all deserve because of our rebellion against God, then you have no hope. But you can. God made a way through sending His Son, Jesus Christ. You can either continue to trust in your own ability to make yourself good enough and hope, wishful thinking, that God will accept you. Or you can place your trust, your faith, in Jesus Christ alone, his finished work on the cross as the only thing that you can hope in. And if you do, you will have the hope of eternal life with God. You will have the hope of forgiveness, the hope of a new clean heart, the hope of being transformed from one who is contemptible to a holy God, like the land of Zebulon and Naphtali and, and, and 
transformed into one who is a son, a daughter of the king. So I beg of you, if that describes you, be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. Not through your church attendance, not through getting dunked in the baptismal, not through checking a card, but simply by placing your faith in Jesus as your only hope. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so very much that we get to celebrate a season that marks your perfect and sovereign plan of redemption. Your plan to redeem sinners like us who were cursed, enemies of you, turned to our own way, contemptible to you, that you sent your son Jesus Christ to rescue us, to save us. Father, we, we have no category for that love. We have no way of humanly comprehending that grace. And so we thank you for it in faith. Father, may our celebration of this season be filled with remembering what Christ has done, remembering his first advent, and eagerly anticipating his return. There's so much, Father, in our culture and in our world today during this season that, that builds anticipation in us during this season. But Father, may we be overwhelmed both in our personal lives and in our family traditions. May we be overwhelmed with anticipation for the return of Christ and desire to live a life today in light of that already determined future. And Father, for those among us who do not know you by faith in Jesus, would you give them the faith at this moment to not say specific words, but to simply cry out in faith, to trust in Christ, your Son, to believe on him as the Lord, to trust in his perfect life and his sacrificial atoning death for sinners like us to know you. May you give them, Father, may you give them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God found only in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.